Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Well, welcome everyone to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics. And we try to provide as many resources as possible for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science and history uh, here at Ashland University. I'm co-chair of the Master of Arts program in American history and government at Ashland University. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I know a lot of you are veterans at this, you've come back, but just in case you're, you're a first-timer, uh, the theme of our webinars this, this year, this academic year, is Moments in Crisis. And what we try to do is pull together some thoughtful scholars and thinkers and, and teachers and have, have an interesting conversation this year about 10 important uh, moments in American history. And as always, we encourage you to participate in that uh, conversation by submitting questions in the chat box. We'll try to get to as many of those as possible. You'll also receive a link in the email within the next week. Uh, you'll receive an email, sorry, within the next week with a link that you can use to request a certificate of participation, and we'll also send you a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. As always, we encourage you to take advantage of our, our document collection at tvh.org and uh, perhaps to help pursue further readings, um, uh, original uh, readings of original documents uh, in light of our conversations that we're having this semester in our Saturday seminars. So today we're talking about the election of 1800, and uh, I'm happy to have with us today Stephen Knott of the United States Naval War College and Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston, very, uh, both very fine scholars uh, uh, um, and, and, and teachers. They both teach regularly in our, in our Master of Arts program. Uh, outstanding teachers, both of them, uh, very knowledgeable in their fields, and both have written top-notch, excellent books uh, on uh, on the presidency and also on Hamilton and, and Washington and Madison and Jefferson. So I, su I suspect that those names will come up in our webinar today at some point, if not right at the beginning. So good morning to both of you, and thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good morning. Thank, thanks, y'all, for having me. Good morning. Yeah, great. I'm going to start with a broad question, as always. You guys, we've done, we've had these conversations before, so I'm just going to start with a broad question, and we'll see where you guys want to take this conversation. So we're, we're calling the, the webinars this, uh, this year uh, Moments in Crisis, so I'm just going to start with a broad question. Um, was the election of 1800 really a crisis? Does it rise to the level of a crisis? Uh, if so, in what sense was it a crisis, and who thought it was a crisis? And I'm going to throw it out there for either of you to, to tackle this. It, or if you prefer to start with something else, of course, you are more than welcome to do so. Well, uh, Jeremy, I'll dive in first. Uh, I think it's fair to assume that the election of 1800, uh, well, it, it, it certainly could have been a crisis. And there were plenty of points along the way where it seemed as if, in fact, it might become such a crisis. Um, I mean, when you think of the fact that at one point, while there was this protracted 
vote count in the House of Representatives since uh, Burr and Jefferson had tied in the Electoral College, uh, there was a mobilization of militias in the immediate vicinity of, uh, of Washington, D.C., uh, due to the perception on the part of some Republicans that the Federalists might pull a fast one and sort of steal the election. So, I mean, that's how seriously some folks at the time, anyways, uh, at least on the Republican side or the Jeffersonian side, were taking this. They, they, they really believed the Federalists might, might steal this election. And then, of course, on the Federalist side, there was, uh, I would say, close to panic at the prospect of, of Jefferson emerging as, as the president. You had Federalists uh, in Connecticut, or I should say you had religious leaders in places like Connecticut warning their flock to to bury their Bibles because if Jefferson were to win, government agents would be coming around attempting to seize their Bibles in order to uh, implement this policy of this uh, secular humanist president, Thomas Jefferson. So, yeah, I, I think actually it does qualify as a crisis, but I'll defer to Jeremy at this point. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think it's a great start off. The, um, look, this was a, uh, an, an election uh, is our first election controversy. Uh, it's our first sort of confusing election. Uh, this is a time when, when uh, Americans hadn't really settled into the constitutional practice yet. Uh, so lots of things still aren't clear. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of, 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 of opportunities for, for people to, to, to imagine paths to, to resolve this, this question that you know would, would strike us today as, as, as somewhat crazy um so for example there there was a scheme uh, that certainly got that got republicans nervous there's a scheme uh, i forget all the details of it but the scheme uh would, would have made john marshall president and, and kind of interim uh capacity um so so there's this stuff there's there's uh you know these militias who are who are trying to, to mobilize to make sure that the right outcome is is is, is achieved uh, also, on that note, we should say it really is important that, that John Adams had, had dismantled the standing army by this point, and so there wasn't a, a standoff between the standing army and the militias. And so we, we were very fortunate to avert a crisis there. But, but one other bit of context I, I would just you know, mention is that, look, in, in 1798, the Federalist Party passed the Sedition Act, and as a consequence of that Sedition Act, 14 Republican newspaper editors or printers were, 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 were prosecuted and indicted in federal courts for criticizing John Marshall, I mean, for cr criticizing um, uh, Federalist officials, uh, most, most importantly, John Adams. And, and so this, this was, uh, uh, you know, going, going to 1798, you know, that this was a, a side in which both sides thought that they were, they were enduring some sort of crisis. On the Republican side, a crisis against principles of, of free speech. Uh, on the Federalist side, a, a crisis um, of, of sedition against the, the national government. And by the way, let me add that those 14 newspaper editors should have been jailed. So, oh, man. You know, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> just a, I'm just trying to spice things up this morning. That okay. was a joke. Oh, got it. I got it. <laughs> all right. It can get spicy if you want. We're all friends. So we, you know, we can all disagree on these things because uh, this, is, uh, this, um, this is something that uh, – Scholars tend to get very uh, worked up over at times, but but I think it's also probably a fair uh, 
reflection of the fact that so many Americans were, were worked up over this election, as both of you were pointing out nicely at the beginning. I wasn't aware that the militia had been mobilized, and, yeah. and, I, and I wasn't aware, Jeremy, also, as you pointed out, that uh, the militia was mobilized because the, because the army had been dismantled. But So I guess uh, just from your initial comments, uh, several questions come to mind. Uh, one, it has to do with um, why there were these fears, why there were these concerns over this particular election. Um, was, it, uh, was it because the Americans were still perhaps thinking of sort of the history of, of sort of the transfers of power as they'd seen them in monarchical regimes in Europe, and they were worried that we might uh, be susceptible to the same sorts of struggles, uh, including you know, the use of violence and force, um, was it more of a constitutional crisis in the sense of, uh, you know, this is a real test of whether this constitution we've established can survive uh, 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 such, a, such an important transfer of, uh, of uh, power from one party of certain principles to a party of perhaps, I say perhaps, <laughs> different principles? I mean, what was the talk about? Uh, I mean, what were the what were the things that people were saying about the importance of this election, if you don't mind? Uh, yeah, I'll I'll take, I, go ahead, Jeremy. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll go first this time. Um, the um, I think one 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 way to think when I think about it is is is, is you could say, look, even even today, um, elections are kind of a crisis. Even in in, in this country, the world's most stable democracy. Um, and that is that when, when, one, when there's a transfer of power from one party to the other, it, it's, not, it's not always entirely clear that the other side accepts the legitimacy of the, of the winning side. Um, and, I, and I think we, we've seen it's become more acute, certainly in the last three elections, um, in, in, in 2000, 2008, and 2016, where there's the, the losing side just says, look, uh, the, other, the other side just, just didn't, didn't play by the rules, that they're, they're, they cheated somehow. Um, this is not really our president. From day one, we're going to go in opposition. Uh, and there's a kind of destate. There is a, a destabilizing aspect in our in our politics that happens in, in, in these turnovers. And so, um, I would say the fear is real, uh, and, and it still exists. Um, and then the difference would be is that is that at that time, that the ruling party, the Federalist Party, didn't believe that there is such thing as a legitimate opposition, even even in theory. And so a uh, big difference between then and now is that, you know, during our best times, we, we say that the other side uh, might be misguided. Uh, there might be a few bad apples, but for the most part, they mean the country uh, well and, and, and they have good intentions. And, and that's a later development in our politics. That just simply didn't exist at the time. Um, and so, so, so neither side really thought that the other side ought to exist. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, but that would be a big difference. No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> terrific point that Jeremy just made. I mean, it is true that among many Federalists, if, if not all, uh, the notion of a loyal opposition was yet to, uh, yes, yet to take root, although I'm not sure it had taken root exactly on the other side as well. Right. But anyways, the fact remains that President Washington had attempted to create what we might call today a government of national unity, an opposition springs up within a very short period of time, led by, by Jefferson and Madison. And then you throw into the mix, and getting back to your, directly to your question, Chris, you've got to throw into the mix the impact 
of the French Revolution and the fears that the party of Jefferson had become a kind of fifth column, column doing the work of uh, the French revolutionaries. And, um, you know, that to me perhaps is the most dominant. I grant you the French Revolution by 1800 is a little bit in the rearview mirror, but still this notion that the Jeffersonians were our version of uh, Robespierre and the others, in other words, completely hostile to traditional religious belief, uh, completely hostile to many of the norms that characterize Western civilization. That really was a belief that was strongly shared by Federalists and particularly in New England and some of the mid-Atlantic states. And boy, you throw that into the mix, you're bound to have a very highly contested election where the other side winning is seen as uh, leading to the destruction of, of the American political order. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I was going to ask, I was going to ask that a, a question about that, the claim you mentioned earlier, Steve, and uh, Steve, that uh, that Federalists were saying hide your Bibles and things like that. I was going to ask whether that was a, whether that kind of accusation about uh, Jefferson and the Republicans was warranted. But maybe the maybe another way to ask that question is to back go back a little bit as you were just doing, and can we talk a little bit about how how it, the the split in the parties emerged, how we got to the point in 1800 that uh, that we had these two parties that looked at each other as somehow fundamentally um, hostile to either uh, well to let's call them Republican ideas, right? With the lowercase r, both both sides I think claim to be representing true true Republicanism as they understood it. So. What were the kinds of things? For example, I'm also particularly interested in why why did they think, you know, something about Jefferson in particular was going to lead to confiscation of Bibles? <laughs> but can we talk about how this came to be somehow. I'll let Jeremy go first. Um, well, uh, Jefferson's religious faith was 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 it was it was a question mark. Um, and um, Jeff Jefferson was sens sensitive to that, um, and um, you know, it's 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 a complicated question. But 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 uh, let's just say that Jefferson uh, was associated with with uh, certain rational or skeptical at attitudes towards towards religious faith. And, and he combined that with an outright hostility towards the New England clergy, uh, and, he, and he believed in, in many respects that 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 the that the backbone, and he's probably right that the backbone of New England federalism came came from the New England clergy, um, and 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 he 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 was wasn't wasn't quiet about that, you know, essentially you know equating them to witch doctors uh, at various points, and so so to some some respects they they were right to concern they they were, they, were, they were rightly worried that that he was going to be hostile to their um, hold on political power in New England. Yeah, yeah I was, so, so his views on religion were pretty well known. I mean, Jefferson's views were, were pretty, and I'm assuming made use of by the opposition, especially during the election, Jeremy? Yeah, I, I mean, how well known is always a hard thing to figure out. It's, it's kind of like asking how influential were the Federalist Papers. Uh, uh, but I mean, just, 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 take, just take his notes on the state of Virginia, for example. 
Um, there, there, he, 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 he published, that's his book that he published in the 1780s, sort of a book, sort of published. But, but initially he distributed among, among 100 people. Um, and, and the reason why he, he kept the distribution small is for some statements that he made. They're controversial. One, one was uh, a statement on slavery that was uh, overly progressive by, by the standards of, of, of slavery in, in Virginia. And the, the, other, the other statement that he was worried about were, were certain statements on, on religious faith, one having to do with the flood. And um, so th- those were out to 100 people. They, they got out more wide spread than that. And, that, that was, and then that book was eventually widely published uh, by 1787. And so, so just that, that kind of skepticism towards, towards uh, just for example, the biblical account of the flood, uh, or maybe a better way to say it, agnosticism towards the biblical account of the flood, would have been well known among elites, at least, um, um, by that time. That, that's fascinating. Um, so, so there there are you know religious implications and and other things involved in the in the person of Jefferson, at least in the eyes of uh, some Americans. What about the uh, I, what about the claim? I, I don't remember where Madison or Jefferson said it, but I think one of them said it that. Um, well, let me let me do it this way, if you don't mind. Uh, it seems to me that Hamilton thought that Madison and Jefferson and and their Republican uh, followers uh, had had um, had sort of jumped ship a little bit, perhaps drank too much of the French Kool Aid, um, and and had deviated from from uh, from say Hamilton or Hamiltonian a Hamiltonian Washingtonian understanding of of the Republican principles that inform the Constitution. And I've heard Madison or Jefferson say the opposite, right? That, that they were the true defenders or true heirs or acting on the true principles of Republican constitutionalism and that it was Hamilton who had um, sort of hidden his, um, or concealed his, uh, his, um, his monocratic leanings, right, and, until until Washington, um, until the Washington administration, and then Hamilton's more more uh, monarchical principles started to emerge. So, can we talk a little bit about how how those two, how how, how does this develop? And um, once, uh, I guess, what are the reasons both sides think the other is deviating from what they consider to be true Republican principles? How, how does this develop in the 1790s? Well, you, you outlined it quite well, Chris. I think there was a, a firm and genuine belief on the part of uh, Jefferson and many of his lieutenants, and certainly amongst those in the general public who sort of paid attention to the political scene in the 1790s that Hamilton was pro-British, if not an outright British agent who somehow thought or sought to restore the United States back into some type of an alliance with Great Britain or perhaps just create an American, an independent American monarchy. Um, I think those views were misguided. Certainly George Washington thought they were misguided and I think tried to persuade Jefferson that that, that, that belief was simply not true. I think Washington says to Jefferson at one point, I don't believe there are more than 10 people in the United States who desire uh, a monarchy for this country. So Hamilton, as the popular musical makes the case, Hamilton had Washington on his side, which was uh, 
a major source of his strength. Now, when Washington passes away on the eve of the election of 1800 in December 1799, he no longer has Washington as his shield. And uh, this is going to have significant implications for the election of 1800. But again, you put it correctly, for the Jeffersonians, Hamilton and the so-called high federalists were uh, in love with Great Britain. And as Hamilton put it, vis-a-vis -vis Jefferson and Madison, they had a womanish attachment to France. That's Hamilton's language. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, look, there were some events during the 1790s to fuel both of those almost uh, conspiratorial views of, of American politics. The fact is, uh, Hamilton did hold secret meetings with George Beckwith, who was the British envoy to, to the United States during the 1790s. These are private, sort of off-the-record meetings, uh, but they were known to some folks in the inner circles. Um, and there were a number of, uh, you know, let, let's face it, Citizen Genet and Andre Michaud and others during the mid-1790s. They spent a good part of their time in the United States attempting to organize pro-French, you know, uh, cl clubs. Um, and these were seen by the Federalists as organizations that had a deeper loyalty to France than they had to the United States. And I can, I can understand that perception. Yeah, so I, I agree with all that, uh, and Steve's really helpfully pointed out the the, the foreign policy uh, dimensions of the, of the of the of the partisan difference. I would I would just briefly uh, point out uh, two more, um, just as to highlight how, how these how these, the views developed of each other. One one is the assumption plan, and that's the assumption of the state uh, or of the revolutionary debts from from the Jefferson and Madison perspective. Uh, this was really just a, 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 the, the, the obvious consequence of this is that a certain group of, of investor types uh, uh, got wealthy at, at the cost of, of honest, uh, normal people who, who took on the original revolutionary uh, war bonds. And, and this group of people were basically guys like Alexander Hamilton. Um, the, the, the second, the second um, uh, thing is, 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 is the bank. And this is really clarifying and, and this is, it really helps, I think, understand the way that Madison pitches the, the, the party difference. And that is that um, with the uh, defense of the constitutionality of the bank, uh, Hamilton, in, in a way, makes it clear that he's not interested in uh, the Constitution. This is from Madison's perspective, the Constitution as it was conceived and, and agreed upon. Um, and, and the evidence for that is that Madison himself, this is, gets really weird, Madison himself had made the proposal for an incorporation of the bank in the Constitutional Convention, and that proposal was voted down. And so, so, so Madison uh, knew that the, 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 the proposal had been voted down in the Convention, and he saw that as tying the federal government's hands with respect to the bank, that there was meaning right. uh, about, about the Constitution that could be derived from the fact that it was voted down. From Hamilton's perspective, this was simply irrelevant, and the Constitution intended to create a good government. Good governments do things like have sound uh, financial policies, and sound financial policies require things like banks. And so all this was silly hand-wringing uh, by, 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 by people claiming the mantle of republicanism, whereas what's really more important is the mantle of good government. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. So <clears throat> I had forgotten, by the way, Jeremy, that Madison, did, he did propose uh, 
uh, power of Congress to establish corporations, wasn't it, at the convention? Yeah, yeah. So Matt Madison was for it before he's against it before he's for it. Yeah. Well, he was for it, but then it be, but it was not included in the Constitution. So yeah, it seems right. like Madison. A lot of this comes down to the question of constitutional interpretation, right? As you were pointing out. So Hamilton believed in a more broad construction. Uh, he believed that I think that there were certain powers that were inherent in every government, whether or not they are constitutionally explicit or not. Um, um, so he had a he had a broad, he had a more expansive view of the sorts of things that government should do, and therefore the things that government could do. Whereas Madison, it seems to me, uh, Madison and Jefferson, um, even though of course Jefferson wasn't there at the convention, but they um, they seem to believe that the the limitations on government were there on purpose, and their and their importance was that they were there to prevent the emergence of some kind of tyranny. Where so I just thinking this through out loud here, it doesn't seem yeah. to me as though Hamilton's all that worried about tyranny. Uh, on the one hand, but I also don't think Hamilton necessarily thought that um, that the Constitution was meaningless, or the words of the Constitution were meaningless. That is, I don't think he thought the powers of the federal government should be simply unlimited. It seems to me the difference really is there's a, a, a Madison and Jefferson thought that the, uh, the Constitution gave this much power to the federal government. Hamilton thought it gave them that much. And I'm often surprised that the, that the, the, the deep Split that emerges over that question, especially when you think about the the degree of power that, say, when the progressives come along a hundred years later. I mean, they're talking about giving the government this much power. I'm trying to do it on screen. Sure. Yeah. The, the, it, am I over? Or am I underplaying this? Or was the was the was this constitutional this question of constitutional interpretation much more significant than I'm than I than I think? I, I don't know. Well, for me, I, the way the way I see it is so. So yes, I, I would I would I would agree and concede that Hamilton did believe in limits, and and he 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 even even would would grudgingly um, uh, concede you know uh, explicit limits. The, the question is 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 in the gray areas, and and in the gray areas, there are two different principles at stake. For 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 Jefferson and Madison, the principle begins with consent. Uh, just what is it? Did I consent to? To give up this power to be governed by by, by this government, um, you won't find consent in, in Hamilton's writings at all. Uh, and so, if you just replace the idea of consent to 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 a different with a different question, and that is, um, just what are the requirements of good government? Um, and because because for this government to work and for the people to actually respect this government and for freedom to be secured by means of a good government, you got to have certain things that are met. And so, those are two different starting points, in, in my view. Uh, Regarding the two positions. Yeah, I think that's a, that's fair. Uh, the, the Jeremy pointing out that there's there's not a lot, if any, discussion in Hamilton's writings about the the importance of, of consent. And in fact, there are more references in Hamilton's writings to the the dangers. Although we we'll have to be careful with this, because certainly Madison. Wrote about this at great length, great length. But the the dangers of uh, of demagogues, the dangers of public opinion being manipulated by, as Hamilton put it, the the little arts of popularity. Um, and and of course, Madison shared those views as well. But Hamilton, I think, of the three that we're talking about at the moment, probably has the the darkest, most uh, jaded view. 
of uh, the role of, of uh, consent, the role of, uh, of the public in public affairs. Um, let me also add, just in terms of Hamilton's looking or interpretation of the Constitution, um, he is somebody, and John Marshall will do this as well, that will talk uh, quite a bit about implied powers and the necessary and proper clause. So if the government is given the power to coin money and facilitate commerce and do other sort of economic and engage in economic and financial policies or practices, then a, then a national bank is probably necessary and proper. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I'm thinking of their, uh, of Hamilton and uh, Jefferson's opinions, by the way, uh, or in particular on the constitutionality of the national bank. And, yeah. and Hamilton, if I remember correctly, begins again with the idea, look, there are, we want good government and there are some things that all governments must do in order to be good. Right, so that means there are implied powers, whether they're explicit or not. And then, as Jeremy reminded me, Jefferson starts his opinion on the constitutionality of the bank with the with the question of consent, right? In particular, the idea of, of the consent of the American people, but also he specifically mentions the consent of the state or the idea that there are the Constitution is informed by the principle that all powers not granted through the Constitution are reserved to the states. And yes, it's a fundamental principle. Fundamental principle. That's right. And I don't. I don't remember. I don't recall Hamilton putting much importance on the states. No. Well, look. I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that Hamilton is sort of the founding father of American progressivism. So when Chris, <laughs> when, when Chris did his, you know, his big arm movement there. Yeah, the progressives are way up here, right? Yeah. I mean, Hamilton, in my view, maybe Jeremy would disagree. Hamilton is not. A, I think if Hamilton were to come back today and see the extent to which the federal government is engaged in all aspects of our lives, he, he would be shocked he would, and he would not be pleased. He specifically states somewhere in the Federalist Papers that the federal government should limit itself essentially to matters of war and peace, uh, international relations, and fostering trade. And uh, this is not a guy, I think, who would think that a Department of Commerce, Energy, Education, Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development Health and Human Services, et cetera, et cetera, was a a proper role for the federal government, and he would he would state very clearly that the more you take on, the less likely you are to carry out those tasks efficiently. So focus on a few things and attempt to do those well. Yeah. Could I add one other thing, Chris, about Please. the National Bank? Please. Um, and this may get Jeremy back up, but uh, once the bank becomes uh, law. Um, Jefferson actually urges uh, his fellow Virginians, or any Virginia, excuse me, he urges the Virginia legislature to pass legislation that would make it a crime for any Virginia banker to engage in transactions or dealings with the National Bank. And as a penalty, uh, if they were convicted, uh, they, would be they would be accused of treason and executed. That, that's a kind of uh, Jeffersonian zealotry that explains why I'm a Hamiltonian. Jeremy? <laughs> hey, some, sometimes the stuff has to hit the fan. Your principles have to be put into action. <laughs> <laughs> and half the earth desol desolated if need be. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Hey, uh, uh, there have been a number of good questions submitted, and I've, I've been greedy and think, asking my own questions so far, but this has been really interesting. 
Uh, but just recently on, on your last point, Steve, uh, Christopher asks, or he says, uh, I've been told that Hamilton would have been happy if state borders were erased and that we were governed by simply national law. True or, or not true? I don't believe I've, I mean, he, I've never heard of a proposal to eradicate the state borders. Now, uh, maybe Jeremy or Chris will correct me on this, but I have never heard that. And governed with one national law, I think that's excessive as well. I think he actually saw a useful role for the states uh, in terms of almost being separate administrative units. Um, so this strikes me, Christopher's question strikes me as perhaps um, a sort of uh, extreme libertarian take on, on Hamilton. I, I don't see him as somebody who wants to destroy the state uh, and create a completely consolidated government. I mean, for his time, clearly he was far ahead of Jefferson and Madison in believing that a, a degree of consolidation had its place. but. Again, he's not, he's not somebody who's determined to destroy the state. I, I would agree, just, just to say um, that just, just from, from, from the perspective of 1787, um, getting rid of the states is impossible. And uh, so maybe he's an abstract proposition, but, but Hamilton's not really given to abstract propositions. And he's, he's much more practical than that. And, and it's, it's a practical matter. It's impossible. Yeah, it does, but it does seem to be part of the myth, to borrow uh, from the a title of one of your books, Steve, right? A, a kind of myth, part of the myth that has, yeah. has grown up around Hamilton, that, that, he, yeah. that he would have favored something like this. But. Well, I mean, yeah, I actually watched a, a talk that uh, Joseph Ellis gave recently on the founders in which he suggested that if Hamilton had had his way, uh, for, forget consolidation. Ellis suggested that we may well have end up, ended up, and these are his words, with a totalitarian dictatorship, which shocked the heck out of me. Well, that's uh, a, yeah. Yeah. But that, that thinking, that notion of Hamilton as a closet Napoleon uh, was very much uh, in the air during the election of 1800, prior to it, and uh, in some ways persists to this day. I've often made the case that Hamilton is the first victim of the politics of personal destruction, and it was a remarkably <laughs> successful campaign to to label him as un-American, a monarchist, yeah. if not a potential dictator. I mean, but you know, Hamilton also was known as an or had a reputation for being an ambitious fellow. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you correct me if I'm wrong on this. It seems like he didn't take many pains to hide his ambition at times. Um, but I will say this, Chris, I mean, George Washington was uh, actually addressed this at one point late in Washington's life. This is after the presidency, but before his death, uh, in which he, he basically said Hamilton's ambition was of the noblest kind. Now, I put quite a bit of stock in Washington's assessment of, of people. Uh, actually, I think he had Jefferson pegged quite well. By the end of his life, he's severed all contact with Jefferson because he's come to realize that Oh. While Jefferson served as Secretary of State, he had been deceiving him on multiple occasions. So, so that happened while Jefferson was still in his administration or, or right after he resigned? Uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the severing of the contact? Yeah, between Washington yeah. and Jefferson. Yeah, that happens around 1797. So the last two and a half, three years of his life, he, he cuts 
Jefferson off. And in fact, Martha Washington is later quoted as saying the two worst days of her life were when her husband died and when Thomas Jefferson paid a courtesy call at Mount Vernon in oh. uh, the spring of 1801. So there was, there was deep animosity by the end between wow. Washington and Jefferson. Yeah. I'm familiar with the letter that Jefferson, I think, this may have been part of, made one of the straws that broke the camel's back, but didn't Jefferson write a letter to, uh, yeah. was it an Italian diplomat, was it Mazai, in which he was very was a former neighbor, Philip Mazai. That's what it was, yeah. And somehow Washington heard about this. And yes, well, it was, published, it was published in the press. It was supposed oh, that's to be what private. Was. Okay. Yeah, Jefferson accused Washington of being a, basically a whore for Great Britain. Right. Now, Jeremy, uh, Jefferson, I mean, this, it seems like part of this is all inevitable when you've got this, this sort of coming together of, of, of great minds, but also, and I don't use this, simply in a negative sense, maybe not at all in a negative sense, but great egos. And I know Jefferson also was very strong-minded in his own views of what good government should be and what the right principles were. Um, so maybe it was inevitable that, uh, that, that these guys were just not going to like each other. It just seems in a very basic sense there was this clash of personalities between them. And then there were the, then there were the high-minded disagreements that seemed to follow uh, which you both have done a nice job of mentioning the, the assumption of the national bank, uh, foreign policy leanings towards France or Great Britain. Um, so it almost seems to me as though, as though when you get great figures like this together, there's going to be disagreements. Um, yeah, I mean, may, may, maybe so. I, I would I would push it further. Um, please, yeah, please. And please. and 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 just take 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 the I'll use an opportunity to comment on on the first inaugural. It's it's um, famous for for that uh, beautiful statement in the second paragraph. We were all Republicans. We were all Federalists. We've called each other different names, even though we have the, believe in the same principle. That stuff. Um, and so it's, so it's taken as as a as a message of conciliation. Um, I don't I don't think that's the right reading. Um, I think that that's the least interesting in a way part of the. Uh, it, it's it's really well written. It's beautiful. Jefferson is clearly uh, gifted in terms of writing those kinds of documents. Um, the first inaugural reads like a declaration that uh, there isn't a, a political event that, Jack, that Jefferson doesn't think a declaration is appropriate for, that he spends mo most of his life doing is writing declarations, uh, whether it's in France or in the U.S. or in Virginia uh, or, or as president. He's drafting declarations all the time, and, he, and he's got a, a, a particular skill at, at drafting them. But when, you, when you read it and there's this list of principles that's the first inaugural address in which a president gives a list of principles to begin with. So, so he's, he's doing this for the first time. And Federalist commentators, by the way, are saying, you know, who gives him the right to, to say what the principles of the administration will be or the principles of the republic are? Um, that, that's not what this is for. And so, so for example, when Washington gave an inaugural address, he, he, gave the, he, gave the oath of, he took the oath of office outside so the people could see him and then went inside to give the inaugural address, which was explicitly devoid of principle or of any, any, any talks about policies. Um, so Jefferson gives, gives this declaration of principles, which are going to summarize good government. And it seems like an innocent enough list. But, but if you compare that list with, with the other document or reading the, the letter to Granger, it's, it's pretty much tracks with that same list that he gives to Granger. And it's, it's a list of contested things that drove the Federalists nuts a defense of the states and their, and, their, and their powers, a defense of freedom of speech as they dig at the Sedition Act, uh, you know, agriculture first, commerce second as it's handmaiding. Uh, it goes on and on. Um, and, and so 
Um, that to answer your question, Jefferson believed, A, that he could articulate the principles of the country. B, he believed that the election confirmed those principles. Both of those claims are extraordinarily revolutionary, uh, and, and it drove Federalists nuts. A, that Jefferson had, 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 had to handle on the principles, but second, that the election was a test of, of those principles. They didn't believe that's what elections did. And so, so that, that in a secondary way, there was also a, a, big, a big part of what was going on. Okay, so Jeremy, so Jefferson says we're all, we're all Republican, we're all Federalists. The, high, the sort of high-toned interpretation is he's calling for reunification after a heated and bitter and nasty election, right? Yeah. When people are calling each but, but another way to read it, if I'm following you, is, is this is Jefferson saying we won and these are Federalist and Republican principles from this point forward. Yeah and, anything, yeah, and anything that deviates from this is outside the pale. Okay. Uh, and, and so that's paragraphs three and four, and then paragraph five is, is actually I can see these principles better than anybody else can because I see the whole ground. <laughs> well, that's a little uh, – I'm trying to think of a nice word for it. Uh, he's, kind of, he's kind of, you know, rubbing it in a little bit then. I can see yeah, that. Yeah, that's how Federalists took it at the time. Okay. Hey, Chris, in, in terms of rubbing it in – uh, allegedly, within weeks of, of Jefferson's inauguration, he asked his Treasury Secretary, Albert Gallatin, to comb through the Treasury Department files with a, with a fine-tooth comb uh, to find evidence that Republicans were convinced would be there of Hamilton's personal corruption when he served as, as Treasury Secretary. And then on top of that, in terms of uh, Jerry, Jeremy's act, absolutely right to sort of dismiss the conventional interpretation of we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans. Um, within a short period of time after his inauguration, he's writing, I believe it's to his attorney general, uh, 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 where he uses the term that he's, he's determined to sink the Federalists into an abyss from which they shall never emerge. So, uh, supporting what, what Jeremy had to say. Well, Larry just uh, mentioned that Jefferson seemed to use impeachment as a political tool. Um, impeachment I'm not, against I'm, judges, I'm assuming. I, I'm, I was wondering if, if uh, what 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 he might mean by this, and and perhaps not. Yeah, Larry says, yeah, judges, yeah. Right. Tickering so. and uh, was it Chase, Jeremy? Jefferson? Yeah. So I I, I spent a summer uh, trying to understand this this part of, of Jefferson, and uh, so, so so the history is that um, they first went after uh, a federal judge who was a drunk. Uh, that's, that's Pickering. Pickering. Uh, and that's really testing whether or not uh, an impeachable offense has to be an indictable offense. Um, and so because there's no so – is, is, is drunkenness a high crime or misdemeanor? Well, obviously not, but it's not, it's not bribery or treason either. Um, and so um, they, 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 that, that dilutes the high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, from one perspective, a kind of a legal perspective, that there has to be an indictable offense to be impeachable. Then they used that to go after Chase, um, who had uh, led prosecutions of the Sedition Act himself and had given some charges to juries that were beyond the pale of judicial uh, behavior, very, very partisan charges. And so while they achieved a, 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 a comfortable majority in the Senate, they didn't get a two-thirds majority. 
um, uh, and so, so the chase uh, removal uh, failed. There, it's complicated to actually, you can't, it's, it's impossible to figure out if Jefferson was rooting for, for Jefferson's in, in impeachment or not. There's some complicated backstories there. Um, but most people agree that the target after Chase would, would have been Marshall himself. Uh, now, so that, that, that's the history. Um, the, as far as Jefferson's view, uh, my, my, my take is, yes, Jefferson wanted a more muscular version of, of impeachments. Uh, that uh, I like to say uh, an impeachment every 19 years or so would be a pretty good thing for the, for the republic. Um, and I think that that pretty much matches Jefferson's view. In his own proposal for a, a constitution for Virginia, he proposed what I call a coordinate board of impeachments. And the theory is that any um, uh, two-thirds of two of the three departments could impeach somebody else on the other departments. And so it would, be, it would, it would activate the impeachment power into a much more political and politicized process by design. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I was going to ask about this too. Maybe we can come back uh, to this uh, in a little bit and talk about sort of the aftermath of the election and how it how how it affected Jefferson's administration. Because we also know he used political appointments. Uh, I'd be curious to know, by the way, if Jefferson used political appointments more than than Washington and Adams, and if maybe Jefferson isn't responsible uh, for sort of initiating. Uh, Sort of removing people from positions because, of course, we know the the, the, the famous Marbury v. Madison case and, and things like that. Um, uh, so maybe we can come back if you don't mind. We can come back to, to some of that and talk about the aftermath of the election in terms of what Jefferson's able to do as president and how he how his election affects um, not just the presidency but also say politics and parties in the country. But there are a number of really good questions about the election itself. So. So here's a here's a, a a fairly common question, but I think a really good one. Larry wants to talk wants to hear you guys talk about Hamilton's involvement in the election um, and how he he handed the election to Jefferson, and and then his follow up questions. Larry asks, how much was Hamilton motivated by love of country? Did it or was it simply that he he sort of I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. Was it simply that he disliked Jefferson less than he disliked the Burr? Uh, can we talk about about some of those politics involved in the election a little bit? Sure, yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, yeah, Hamilton uh, is a major player in the election of 1800. Obviously, he's not a contender. Um, not that any of these guys were out really campaigning, with the exception of Burr, who actually did do some campaigning. Uh, but Hamilton's a major figure, obviously, in the, within the Federalist uh, Party, and he's got a horrible relationship with John Adams. Um, Hamilton and Adams had broken over a number of issues, but of course the quasi-war being the biggest, Hamilton was essentially running the army that had been raised, that had been authorized by Congress and by Adams to prepare for war with France. Uh, he was deeply disappointed with Adams's uh, mission to France, which uh, ultimately leads to a, to a treaty. I don't accept the version of folks who say that Hamilton was going to use this army to somehow march into the South and destroy uh, the Jeffersonians and create or install himself as a, as a dictator. It doesn't, doesn't fit with his demobilization of that quasi-war force uh, when he was instructed to do so. And Napoleon probably wouldn't have demobilized an army that he was in command of just because Congress asked that he do so. Secondly, it would have also required George Washington's participation or at least consent, and I really think we could all probably agree that Washington would not have sanctioned any dictatorial drive on the part of Hamilton. But 
uh, as uh, Washington's dead in December 1799, and Hamilton, in, in my view, uh, enters a, a, a part or a phase of his life where he really could have used that sort of moderating influence from Washington. I don't think Hamilton writes that 54-page circular letter condemning Adams for his lack of, uh, uh, not, not only for not being up to the job, but it's kind of a personal attack on Adams's character. I don't see that happening had Washington still been alive. He acted, acted as kind of a check on Hamilton's excesses. Uh, and so Hamilton does certainly contribute to the uh, poor showing of the Federalists in the election of 1800, although keep in mind, the election of 1800 basically takes place between April of 1800 and well into the fall of 1800. Hamilton's circular letter doesn't come out until the fall of 1800. So I think this is another example of a myth that gets built up in our conventional history books uh, that Hamilton's letter undid Adams's chances. I think Adams probably loses anyway without so, that letter. So I'm sorry, so, Ham so Adams had already... Well, already dug his own hole, so to speak, in, right? In my view, yes. I think in the view of some other folks who have looked at yeah. this question, yeah. He's, he's already deeply in trouble, and yeah. he uses Hamilton's letter in the rest of his life. He blames Hamilton for that defeat, and, of course, his hatred for Hamilton is probably on par with that of, of Jefferson. Yeah. Uh, to get to Larry's point about uh, Hamilton endorsing Jefferson and what was the motive for it, um, I mean, a good part of it, perhaps the, the lion's share of the motive, is based on his distrust of, of uh, Burr. Hamilton believes that Burr lacks all principles. He's not guided by any set of principles. He's one of these politicians who will put his finger in the wind to see which way the wind is blowing. Um, and, uh, you know, Jefferson, he says, at least has a set of principles and believes in them. And importantly, Hamilton adds, that Jefferson will, uh, in a sense, protect the office of the presidency, that he will be a strong chief executive. And that was very important to Hamilton. So it's a mix of some principles and a mix of just a real deep disdain for Burr. That's, that's fascinating. So I want, I'm just curious about a couple of things about, um, well, I'll come back to my second point. Did, uh, did we know? whether or not this in any way reconciled Jefferson and Hamilton uh, personally or politically? No, it did. no not at all. So not they just disliked each other to the very end. Correct. So Hamilton only lives until July 1804. Right. Burr kills him. But right. no, there, there's, there's no reconciliation at all. And as I said before, Jefferson asked Gallatin to try to find the information that will finally right. bury Hamilton as a public figure in American oh. life. Wow. Well, Steve, you remind me that there's, there are divisions among the Federalists uh, going into the election of 1800. Um, uh, divisions over, it seems to me, mostly over which candidate is going to best um, live up to the principles. seems to me the, high, the, the principles of the high Federalists. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But there seemed to be a split and some disorganization, disorganization oh, sure. of the Federalists leading up to the election of 1800. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas, Look, Go ahead, sorry, please. Well, Hamilton controlled Adams' cabinet for three out of the four years that Adams was president. Adams makes the mistake, although it was a very magnanimous, uh, nonpartisan gesture, if you will, or uh, to keep Washington's cabinet in place. 
Walcott, McHenry, and Pickering, these are all Hamilton allies, and they're consulting with Hamilton throughout Adams's presidency. Now, the conspiratorial view is that this is the evil Hamilton attempting to sort of control the Adams presidency, but the fact is John Adams was an absentee chief executive. He spent the bulk of his time right down the road here where I live in Braintree, Mass., uh, at his home. He was gone for eight or nine months at a time at one point in his administration. So these guys were constantly turning to Hamilton for guidance. Um, but, you know, finally, at the height of the quasi-war, Adams gets rid of all these guys who are working for Hamilton and not for him. Um, but yeah. the divisions were deep. That's fascinating. I, I, did, I didn't know that about Adams, actually. So And, yeah. and how, Hamil how Hamilton's people were really turning to him yeah. for guidance. They were. They were, yeah. So but of course, Adams the, resented. Yeah, right. Yeah. So these deep, these deep personal resentments over political, you know, sort of the political workings of things is, is fascinating at this time. But while the while the Federalists then seem to be, um, you know, really, I don't want to overdo it, but but you know, sort of uh, fracturing in a way over over leadership. Uh, it seems to me, at least as I understand it or I've read or heard, uh, most people think that the sort of Jeffersonian machine, I know that's not quite the word to use yet historically, but the, they did a really good job somehow of mobilizing Americans and, and unifying a group of, uh, uh, well, a party around certain principles. And you might say that, that their campaign was, was also significant because it was the first really successful effort at, at building uh, a, 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 a a political movement around certain principles and getting people to vote for those principles. So, um, Jeremy, I don't know. Do you have it? Can can you comment on that? What did Madison and Jefferson do? Yeah. So let me. Well? Let, yeah. So um, just just this is not um, the 20th century, and, and certainly it's not it's not even the the uh, log cabin and hard cider campaign of 1840. Um, which, which is a, a, a different kind of marker for certain kind of modernization of, 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 of campaigns. Um, that I, I, would, I would say this is uh, most of the organization that you're talking about is going to be basically through newspapers and through, through elite politics. Uh, and then um, probably the most critical is that Burr ran, ran a cast of all-stars for the legislative elections in New York, and he outmaneuvered Hamilton there. Uh, and so by winning... Winning, winning New York's legislature, uh, the, the Republicans uh, could, 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 could be more comfortable in the election of 1800, and a lot of it depends on that. Um, but there, there is an, a, a part of this that I, that I would like to highlight. So, so one, one has to do with the election controversy itself, and that is that, uh, look, when, when Republicans say we all know the people intended uh, Jefferson and not Burr, the Federalist response to that is what is this intent that you're talking about? Where, 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 what are you talking about? There's nothing in the, in the formal law that talks about uh, intent or, or even the public will with respect to electing the president. We have these procedures, and the House is not going to be bound by any, any, any notion of, of what, what the people intended. Uh, that you're trying to impose some, some different notion. Uh, and so, so what we, we assume in terms of, of what, how a presidential election is, is going to work, that there's going to be a winner, and that winner is going to be connected to some kind of majority. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Uh, as a matter of fact, Federalists say, look, Burr is the consensus candidate in the sense that he represents more of, of the nation, whereas Jefferson is more of a Southern candidate. And so since Burr is a more national candidate, he's a more plausible candidate. So that, that's one, one point. Second, secondly, 
if you go back to Madison's uh, essay, The Candid State of Parties, and the other parties, other essays of the National Gazette written about the same time, I think you see two central claims made about the, about the, the New Republican Party that stand out. One is that, we've talked about one, the Republican Party is the party of strict construction. The, the Federalist Party is, 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 is the party that's opposed to strict construction and therefore opposed to Republican government and, and, and the Constitution. So, so we are the party of strict construction. Secondly, we are the party of the will of the majority, or we are the party of public opinion. This was something that Federalists did not counter by saying, no, we are the party of the majority, or we are the party of public opinion. Rather, their, their, their response to that is, no, that kind of appeal is illegitimate on its face. Uh, and so that decade of the 1790s, in many respects, is a working out of, of the Republican or the Jeffersonian claim that somehow the presidency should be connected to public opinion or at least the national government should be connected to public opinion in some way. And Federalists are resistant to that. Uh, and so when you get to the controversy of 1800 and Federalists trying to sort out how, how to, A, benefit from, from this embarrassment that the Republicans have done by, by giving Burr and Jefferson a tie, uh, is, is, is what, what are some principles that can guide us here? And, and so that, that's uh, an important one to, to see, is that public opinion has not been cemented uh, as, as a legitimate source of authority by this point. Can you say that last point? What, Jeremy, say that last point again. Do you mind? Only one party believed in public opinion as a, as a legitimate ah. source of public opinion. Okay. The Federalists did not accept it. That's right. That's uh, and so, so in the 20th century, both parties contend over who best represents public opinion. Uh, but in the 1790s, there, were, there weren't two parties contending over that. That's a great uh, point. So, elect, so another significance of 1800 is that, 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 that it, it, it brings in the idea that elections are over which party. Is, well, it takes a while. The Whigs don't accept it. The Whigs resist it. And, then, uh, and, then, and the Republican Party stays uncomfortable with it for a very long time. I mean, if you, even if you go to the progressives, think, think about the, the, the Republican opponents, the Taft. Uh, this is a, a digression. But, but the Republican Party was never really comfortable with what they saw as a Jeffersonian, Jacksonian claim uh, that, that, look, these elections are about the will of the people, and, and, they, and, and, and they can embody, be embodied in something called the president. Very interesting. So that, that, yes, it emerges in 1800, but it's not settled by that. Uh, If I could just add to what Jeremy said, terrific points. Uh, Hamilton finally acknowledges in 1802 that the Federalists are getting their clocks cleaned um, in terms of of public opinion, popular consent. And this is when he comes up with that proposal, which is somewhat controversial, for the creation of a Christian constitutional society. They're going to try to use the existing churches, particularly in New England and the Mid-Atlantic states, to try to um, contest the Republicans, if you will, at the street level. Uh, and he, he does this reluctantly. He's not thrilled. If you read this letter to one of his Federalist allies, uh, I can't think of who it is offhand. It might have been Rufus King or someone. But um, he's reluctant to do this. He thinks, in a way, it's a kind of uh, degradation of the American political order, but he confesses that the Federalists have been getting killed, literally, not, not literally, excuse me, but just, just being beaten time and again at, uh, at the polling booth, and it's time for the, for the Federalists to try to counter that with their own sort of, again, street organizations, if you will. Yeah, uh, th- thanks for that, Steve. I, I, I had forgotten about that. I, I, I need to think more about that. That's a very interesting point. A- another example is the Jay Treaty. Uh, Todd Estes' book, uh, Estes teaches in, for Ashbrook from time to time, 
Estes' book on the Jay Treaty shows that the Federalist Party outmaneuvered the Republican parties on, on mobilizing opinion in support of, of, of the Jay Treaty. Uh, but what he also shows is that the, the Federalist Party felt dirty about it. Uh, they, they felt it was, it was kind of gross or unseemly, and they recognized that they weren't playing on their, on their turf. They're eventually going to lose the long game if they continued playing it. Great point. That's a great point. Yeah, by the way, I think you both just answered one of the earliest questions we got, which was from, it was from Billy, who asked about, he asked for clarification uh, about a line in that Madison uh, editorial, Candid State of Parties. The line is, stratagem is often an overmatch for numbers. And, and, and Billy asked what he might be referring to there. I think you both just answered that, <laughs> right? Because the Federalists, the Federalists seem to be better at this at stratagem, uh, whereas they don't, they don't, uh, and, mo and moving public opinion in a certain way. But, uh, but, but the, the reference to net to, to numbers seems to me to have to do with the idea of, uh, of popular consent and majority popular consent. But, but, but this. Steve, if you just want to jump in, go ahead, please. Yeah, let, let's not forget that, in my view, the Federalist Party um, dies on December 14, 1799, when George Washington okay. passes away. I mean, George Washington heft his, his respect uh, amongst the American public, although it had faded somewhat by the time of the Jay Treaty and portions of the South. Uh, but that, that was indispensable. He was the indispensable man in terms of creating the, the, the winning the war, creating the Constitution, but he's also the indispensable man when it comes to the Federalist Party. And when he dies in December 1799, Adams can't possibly replace Washington, and Adams knew this and it always bugged him, uh, even though he thought he had better credentials than Washington. And in a way, Hamilton couldn't do it as much as I admire Hamilton. Uh, he did not have Washington. He, he, he did not have the reputation that Washington had, but he also didn't have the sort of sound political judgment, I think, that Washington had, which, is, which was a, a very uh, uh, kind of moderate, prudential approach to politics. Hamilton had a tendency at times uh, to fly off the handle. The, the letter that he wrote about John Adams being perhaps a good example of that. I, that's really important, Steve, I think, because there's something about Washington's character that despite political differences, uh, there was still still seemed to me that most uh, most people could still respect Washington for his character and his his judgment, yeah. as you point out, and also for his self restraint. And yeah, and, and again, I know I've read, you know, I think Wash or Jefferson and, and had written some letters, and others had written letters that that Washington was simply the puppet of uh, or the yeah or, yeah the puppet of Hamilton and all of these things. But but I, that was probably more seems to me more a reflection of Washington's tendency to listen at least before he made a decision, yeah. which just happened to be more times than not in agreement with what Hamilton. Right. Uh, and Washington was never anybody's puppet. Yeah. Ever. I don't see any evidence for so, that at all. Right? No, I don't either. But as a political tactic, there were the there were the slander sure, uh, sure, slander sure. campaigns against Washington. Yeah. And um, and I'm I, you know I have a great respect for James Madison especially, but I'm, I'm often pained to. To recall that his um, one of his college uh, buddies ended up uh, being responsible for a lot of those slanders um, in his uh, newspaper. I'm just drawing a blank on his name for some reason right now. Who was the guy that Jefferson hired? I can't remember. Calendar. Yeah. Yeah. He and Madison were were uh, was it was it him? I think it was. 
Well, or Philip Pernod, is that? Pernod, sorry, Philip Pernod and yeah. Madison yeah. were friends from yeah. college yeah. at Princeton. Yes, so that's right. Jersey. Yep. Yep. And some of that, sl- some of those slanders against Washington stuck, and but those were they did. Yeah. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask though, since we're we're, we're sort of leaning in this direction uh, uh, again, what what uh, in terms of the significance of the election, uh, the election of 1800, in terms of the consequences and in terms of perhaps the effect on the parties. So, Steve, you you brought up the idea that the Federalists sort of went down in the trenches and um, uh, after the election of 1800 continued to fight on the, the, the state and local level, right? Yeah. Um, the, if I'm not mistaken, the, in the election of 1800 produced Jefferson uh, as president, and I think, Jeremy, you mentioned earlier, the, the, the Republicans did pick up a majority in the Senate. Am I correct about that? But not in the... Oh, they took over both houses of Congress. Both houses, but not a, not a supermajority in the House, right? Oh, they had a super. They actually had supermajorities eventually oh. by, by 1804, but it just they they um, in the Senate they couldn't count on getting two thirds for every vote. I see. So, so actually, the Chase impeachment comes down the same time, the same month, really. Well, the same couple of months as the Louisiana Purchase and the Twelfth Amendment, all requiring two thirds votes. And so if you watch those votes, there's a group of moderates that, that are really calling the shots on how those two-third votes are going to go. Okay. So, so on the federal level, on the national level, I should yeah. say, perhaps, uh, it's, it's Republicans all the way. But, it, but the Federalists didn't simply die out altogether. We know that the, uh, they were still active on the state and local level for a while, I believe, right? No, that's right. I mean, they, they actually run presidential candidates up through the election of 1816 against Monroe. When uh, Rufus King runs against Monroe and is, you know, absolutely slaughtered, uh, and then King is actually gathers, I think, a few. Or King is kind of in the mix in 1820, but for all practical purposes, on the national level, the last formal, again, you can't really say campaign, uh, but the last time they have a formal nominee of sorts is Rufus King in 1816. As you say, uh, Chris, at the, at the state and local level, of course, the Federalist Party persists, particularly in New England, uh, well into the 1820s. But from, by the 1830s or so, Jeremy knows a heck of a lot more about this than I do. But most of these Federalists have either become, as John Quincy Adams will come, become, uh, uh, sort of the northern wing of the Democrat Republicans or become Whigs. Yeah, it seems to me, again, Jeremy, if you don't mind, help me think this through. It seems to me that the, I've always understood it, that these, that the, uh, there's the northern and there's the northern and southern wing of the Republican, uh, Democratic Republicans, but then there's this emergence of the national Republicans, which, um, which again, I do think draw more heavily from the northern states, but John Quincy Adams, you know, it seems to me to be aligned more with the idea of a national, a national Republican, um, where you see, I, th- I do think you see a lot of the, the, some of the Federalist ideas continue to exist, although now sort of under the umbrella of, of, a, of, the, of the Republican Party. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put it differently. Please, yeah, please help me. Uh, and then from, 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 from uh, I'll put it in, in, in this sort of big, bold content, uh, uh, way. Think about how successful the Revolution of 1800 was, just as a matter of, of, of electoral dominance. Uh, you know, we think of it going through 1824, uh, but but really, it, it it goes at least through 1860, 
Um, and, uh, you know, you have a few Whig victories, but they're weird and, and they're temporary. Um, and uh, Lincoln's victory is no, is no, 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 no clear uh, mandate. Um, and then from, from 1864 to, to, to 1900, well, to 1896, you have a bunch of narrow victories uh, where the Democrats and the Republicans are, are, are contesting um, a very close uh, uh, contest. Sometimes, I think there are three in a row in, in this, around the 70s that are cited by less than one percentage point, at least at, uh, popular, uh, at, at the popular uh, way of counting it. Um, and so it's not really until, until 1932, when the Democratic Party transforms itself, that, that, you know, that this, this coalition connected to states' rights and limited government um, is, 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 in a way, defeated. I mean, it really is an impressive, an impressive uh, accomplishment. Now, or to put it differently, I mean, in some, in some sense, you know, the Civil War is complicated, but you could, have, you could certainly say Jefferson won half of the 19th century, from, from a certain perspective, you can almost say he won the entire 19th century. That's great. That's, that's, that's great really point. fascinating. That's really well put. It, it should be pointed out for what this is worth that, um, and I'm not the first one to mention this, obviously, but the, three, the three-fifths compromise is, is critical to not only Jefferson's victory, but the victory of a number of, of, of Madison and Monroe and uh, Jackson in terms of its contribution to the electoral clout that was given the South and was given the, uh, the Democrat Republicans or the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians. If you pull that three-fifths compromise out of the American Constitution, I grant you I'm engaging here in uh, a tremendous counterfactual, but uh, John Adams actually That's wins the presidency in 1800. That's amazing. That's a great point. Um, I, I, I just, there's no easy way to segue from that great point to the next question, although they may be related. Um, but uh, but it's going back a little bit. Larry Larry submitted a question. Uh, first of all, he says that this has been a high level conversation, but he, he he's fascinated and his students are fascinated by the mistake that was made in creating the tie between Jefferson and Burr, and he, he's, he'd like to talk a little bit more about that. And that reminds me of another question I was actually going to ask, which is the effect of the election of 1800 on how the electoral college works. So maybe we, can we talk a little bit about that? How does this affect how presidents are elected um, because yeah, of the so, ties that emerges? So, so um, I, I've written a bunch on the 12th Amendment. The 12th Amendment fixes the Aaron Burr problem. Uh, it fixes it because it forces um, the, the elector, the member of the Electoral College to designate who uh, uh, is going to be president, who's going to be vice president. Before that, it was a piece of paper with two names with no designation. So when Federalists said there's no way to figure out who intended who for what, they, they were right because the paper just had two names on it with no designation. So the 12th Amendment gives the designating principle. The 12th Amendment also did a lot more than that because it clarified uh, that there's going to be something like a majority associated with one person uh, rather than serving as a kind of nominating contest for, for people to decide later in the House. And that, that's where a lot of the debate on the 12th Amendment happened. Um, anyway, how did they make the mistake? Well, uh, it's, it, 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 you have a series of elections in which they're figuring out how to organize, organize around a national slate of uh, uh, candidates. The Constitution did not anticipate that that would happen. Uh, it happens as quickly as 1796. Um, in 1800, the Republicans are super organized. 
but simply put, they're not organized enough for one of them to um, uh, remember to, to discount uh, by, by casting their vote for somebody other than Burr. And the 12th Amendment fixes that. The 12th Amendment fixes that. But the interesting thing about the 12th Amendment is you have to ask the question, why was it necessary to fix it? And if you look in the, in the context of 1804 and the various things that the Jeffersonians want to do in Congress that require two-thirds votes, the 12th Amendment was a deviation. Hmm. So it wasn't like they were worried about making the same mistake again for 1804. They, they could solve that without amending the Constitution. So, so that, that's my clue. The 12th Amendment was about something more than that. But anyway, that's really that, that, requires a whole, that requires a whole webinar in itself. Well, I was going to say, Jeremy, that sounds like a book. Book project. <laughs> Everyone future. who's listening today needs to understand that they've just heard from the world's foremost expert on the 12th Amendment. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I agree entirely. Um, <laughs> thanks, Jeremy. Um, we're down to our last few minutes, and um, I, you know, I wish we had a, a little more time because I've got a couple of other really good questions. I'll, I'll start with one quickly. Uh, Billy asked this earlier. Um, about uh, the Jefferson administration in light of the election. Uh, and I'm, par I'm paraphrasing his questions a little bit here for the sake of time, but do, um, did Jefferson as president live up to those principles that he claimed he was defending in the election? Uh, I, I'll put it another way. I've often heard that Jefferson as president ends up being a pretty good uh, federalist in terms of his understanding of executive power. Is that a fair assessment or not? Go ahead, Jeremy. I'm going to say yes. He absolutely lived up to those principles. Okay. Uh, that, that, that's an easy one. Um, but but here, let me give you give me give me the, the to give you the easy the the way that I see it. Take Louisiana Purchase. Uh, the most important thing from the perspective of this question is, about Louisiana Purchase is not the purchase itself, but that Jefferson always saw it as a violation of his own principles. Uh, so so it was it was it, he, he never he never modified his principle or justified. It, by 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 some other. He always saw it as as, as a problem. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's the most interesting thing. So he so he kind of acknowledged that he was stepping outside of constitutional executive authority by doing this. Yeah, he never he never used the Constitution to justify his authority for the purchase. Okay. Whereas his way, Hamilton was correct when he said in that letter to James Bayard when he was urging Bayard, a Federalist congressman from Delaware, to pull his support for Burr. And to go with Jefferson because Jefferson would defend the office of the presidency. Jefferson, in fact, did defend the office of the presidency. Now, some people are fond of saying that Jefferson was a Hamiltonian chief executive. I would lean in that direction because I do see both in his conduct of the war with the Barbary pirates and also in his behind-the-scenes control, you might even say manipulation of Congress, uh, Jefferson was a very strong energetic, as Hamilton would say, chief executive. Yeah, that's great. I, I, um, I, I would just make one more point there in, in agreement. And um, in, in my book on Jefferson, I, I spent a chapter looking at his actions as wartime governor of Virginia. Um, so that and that's, so that's 1780. And you see a very, I would say, a rather muscular use of executive power by by the wartime governor. Um, we, we've, we've come to the end of our time here. Um, I hesitate to throw this question out, but uh, just because we're out of time, it's a great question. Um, I'm picking up on a question that Natalie submitted about uh, maybe uh, in light of the, the, all the things we've talked about, about uh, with regard to the 1800 election, what lessons can we apply to, say, 
contemporary lessons, maybe the most recent, uh, or the contemporary elections, uh, maybe the most recent election. Are there parallels, things we can learn from the consequences of 1800 today? That's huge. That's probably a webinar in itself as well. So I, I hesitate to throw that out there, but I give that, I throw that out there as your opportunity for any last thoughts before we wrap things up. Or if you'd rather not talk about it, I, that's fine too. But. Very quick superficial observation. One thing we can perhaps take encouragement from the more we learn about the election of 1800 is to realize that we've always had highly contested, one might say dirty campaigns. This was a remarkably dirty campaign. We really didn't get into it too much. But I mean, the kind of stuff that was being circulated in both Federalist and Republican newspapers, usually frequently of a personal variety, was, this was scathing stuff. And yeah. so don't get too overwhelmed with the idea that because we live in a time when politics seems to lack all civility, that this is somehow something new. I would argue that it is not new at all. And we, and we survived the crisis of 1800. Right, right. Yeah. That's a yeah. great lesson to take from this. Well, I, I thank you both very much for an exceptionally interesting uh, webinar. Uh, this has been re I've really learned a lot. Uh, the, the amount of detail and knowledge that you both brought to this has been fantastic. And, and Jeremy, I think we may have a new idea for a future webinar series. Perhaps we do amendments, in which case I'll, I'll call you and ask you to explain the 12th Amendment to us. Um, but I... I Appreciate both of your time uh, this morning and um, really, really been fantastic. So thank you both very much. Great. Thanks, thank Greg. you. And I'll see you both, talk to you both soon at some point about right. magic stuff, right? So right. Thank uh, you. thanks, everybody else, for joining us as well. And thanks for, thanks for some great questions. Uh, I think they really helped the conversation. Just a reminder about the email you'll receive with the, with the link uh, by which you can request a certificate, a certificate of participation. Our next Saturday webinar will be October 7th, and we'll be talking about the nullification crisis. And I'll be joined by Eric Sands of Barry College and my colleague here at Ashland, uh, Jason Stevens. So I hope to see you all then. Until then, take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.